That wasn't <clears> in my notes, but it was worth saying. What is the one thing that you fear the most? What's the one thing you fear the most? Some people in this room instantly goes to spiders. Spiders are nasty. Some people instantly go to snakes. Some people instantly go to heights, like roller coasters or like a mountain. Some of you are really afraid of clowns. You don't need to tell me who you are, but I'm sure there's someone in this room that hates clowns. Some of you are afraid of the idea of outer space. You're like, that sounds terrifying. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a little kid, as most, most little kids do. Some of you are afraid of the open ocean. There's like no fear greater than swimming in water that you can't see the bottom of. That is like terrifying. Who knows what's down there? Right? There, there's, these, there's these superficial kind of surface level fears that, that create this response within us. But what about, what about the deeper fears? What about the fear of rejection? What about the fear of humiliation? What about the fear of shame? Maybe I can ask the question this way. What is the one thing you are most afraid of losing? Or what do you desire the most? See, those sound like different questions. They sound like opposite questions. But really, they point to the same answer. If you understand your greatest fear, you will actually find your greatest desire, your greatest love. Let me show you how that works. If your greatest desire is to win the approval of the people around you, if you're a people pleaser, you'll do anything. You will take the humiliation. It does not matter so long as people like you, so long as they look at you with affection or fondness. However, if you're someone who fears, if you're someone who only wants to have control over situations, over people, over what's happening in your life, you fear something different. And you are, are afraid of humiliation. You're afraid of being little, of not having power over your situations. And you don't even mind being rejected by people. It doesn't bother you so long as you have control. You see how there's a connection. There's a connection between these. If your greatest fear is feeling shame or guilt, you will do anything necessary to remove that feeling from your conscience. You will bend the rules. You will go around people. You will even lie to yourself in order to avoid the feeling of shame in your heart. Tonight we're going to be talking about a different fear. But I want to show you in our passage that it follows the same pattern. There's a connection between what we fear and what we love. Please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you're just joining us or you weren't able to make it last week, we have begun a journey through this book, through the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is both the author... And the main actor that we read about in this book. And what's interesting is that he lived in a world that was upside down. He lived in a very tumultuous, chaotic period in the life of Israel, Judah to be more specific. 
In some ways, that resonates to what we are in, the society that we live in that just feels like it's crumbling and falling apart. And though when some people hear the word Nehemiah, they just think of the fact that he built these walls, whatever that means, whatever that did, don't really know, but he built the walls. There's a lot more, not only within this text that we're going to look at tonight, but throughout this book that I'm really excited for you guys to learn about how God works through human beings. Nehemiah, as we will see tonight, expresses the best kind of fear. The best kind of fear. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, would you open your word to our hearts, to our minds. We are weak. We need you. We ask that you would awaken the proper affections for you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. And we're going to read through. This is Nehemiah's prayer, the end of his prayer to God. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man who is the king. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. But why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king sees right through this. The king said to me, what are you requesting? Nehemiah's getting at something. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, my request is that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, Also, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortresses of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. My title tonight, if you're taking notes, is Fearing God. Fearing God. And there are some misconstrued ideas of what fearing God means. Some of us, when we hear the word fear God, it makes you think being scared and afraid of who God is. And that doesn't really point to the best picture. Tim Keller provides a good definition. He says, fear of God, fear of the Lord, is joy-filled awe and wonder of who God is and what he's done. Fear of the Lord is joy-filled awe and wonder of who God is and what he's done. And I think that's a helpful summary, but we should test it by looking at what the Bible, how the Bible uses it. If you look at Nehemiah 1.11, it says this, Talking about the servants who delight to fear your name. 
You see that? Fear and delight, back to back. Deuteronomy 10:12 says this: "Fear the Lord your God and walk in all His ways, to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul." Psalm 130 verse 4 is another example. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, there's a connection between loving God and fearing God. God actually puts those two things together. To fear God is not to run away from him, but rather to run towards him. And learning and walking in God's commandments is our expression of love to God. To love God is to fear God, and to fear God is to love God. Those are interchangeable. And going back to the discussion we started tonight with, fearing God means that he is the one thing that you are most afraid of losing. Is God the one thing you are most afraid of losing? If he is, then you fear God. Tonight we're going to see from Nehemiah three different ways that we fear God. Three different demonstrations of the fear of God. Because that's kind of a big subject, a big idea. What does that look like? How do, we, how do we see that in this passage in a real life? We fear God by, number one, working faithfully. Working faithfully. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 1 in Nehemiah, it says that the month is Chislev. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, it says that the month is Nisan. And what we know is that there are four months between these, okay? So Nehemiah gets the bad news, chapter 1, verse 1. The city's destroyed, gates are in ruin. And four months later, he's still sad about it. (laughs) This is a big deal. This is significant. And the question is, what has he been doing for the last four months? What has Nehemiah been doing for the last four months? The very end of chapter 1 tells us one answer. It says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, we don't have cupbearers. Those are not a real position anymore. But here's a summary. A cupbearer was a person who would taste the food and the drink before the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He was like the sacrifice in case someone was trying to kill the king. Okay? And in order to be a cupbearer, First of all, you were risking your life every day that you went to work, literally. Like you could die every single day you went to work. And you had that in your mind. And this is a vulnerable position because of that. However, in another sense, this was a protected position because the king respected him. The king is only ever going to allow someone that he trusts to hold his life in his hands. Because if Nehemiah poisoned the food, the king would never have no idea. The king would die. So Nehemiah, more than any servant in Persia, was trusted by King Artaxerxes. This would have given him a certain level of access to the king that very few people would have, although they weren't exactly best friends. This was not a bestie relationship. Nehemiah still knew that this king could kill him on a whim, just like that, if he lost trust in him for any reason. The thing about being a cupbearer is that there are no mistakes on the job, okay? I worked at Starbucks and Meg's, actually. And if you made a mistake, all you had to do was like, make another drink and apologize to the customer. Not how this works. Your life is on the line every day that you go to work. Nehemiah was working hard at the task at hand. 
But the second question, the second answer to the question of what has Nehemiah been doing can be summarized in one word. And it is a word that will strike fear in some of you and joy in others. Planning. Planning. Some of you absolutely hate planning. It's like the enemy. That is the worst, your worst nightmare is planning something. Some of you can't imagine a day without planning every single detail of it because you just love planning. But Nehemiah was faithful not just to do the work that was at hand, but also to plan ahead. He's very intentional. And unlike many of us, he doesn't procrastinate until the, the last, until the night before it's due in order to do the thing that he knows that he should do, right? Nehemiah is planning ahead. And Nehemiah has been praying for four months that God would provide an opportunity to make his request known to the king. The whole time he's been praying, he's been thinking exactly how he's going to say it. Here's a way that we can see this. Imagine you have a friend who doesn't know the Lord, doesn't know Jesus, walks far from him. It's clear. And not just a friend, but I want you in your mind to imagine one specific friend that you know does not love the Lord. Maybe you go to school with them. We'll go with that. You go to school with them. Think of this friend. We're called to pray for those who don't know the Lord. We're called to share the good news, evangelize to them. And it is great for you guys to pray that God would give you an opportunity to share your faith with them. That is a great prayer. And I pray that each of you would be praying that prayer about your friends. But as you do that over and over again, praying that you'd get a share, if you don't get specific, if you're not intentional, Here's an instance that can happen. Let me describe a scene. You run into your friend, Johnny or Susie, in the hallway at school. And it just so happens that they're walking to the same class as you. Perfect. You get an opportunity and you realize this is the moment. This is the opportunity that I've been praying for to share the gospel with my friend. But then you think in your head, should I start with a question to ask how they're doing? You know, maybe they won't care about what I have to say until I prove that I care about them. Or maybe you're like, okay, no, I just need to cut the crap. Just, Susie, you need to repent, right? You know, like maybe that's the right approach. But that could be a little aggressive. So maybe I should think of a, see you later, and they're gone. Walking to the next class, right? That can happen. And it's happened to me. And I'm sure it's happened to some of you in this room that you feel like you had this moment. That you were praying for, and then it came and went. Because you hadn't planned for it. You hadn't prepared for it. I don't want to say that God can't use us right on the spot, because he often does. But, a way that we can demonstrate that we fear God more than our own priorities, is by planning ahead. God gives each of us different opportunities, different people to influence, different abilities, different jobs, different schools, different sports teams. And if we fear God, we will demonstrate that in being faithful to work and to plan for the things ahead. There's another way that we fear God. Number two, we respect authority, respecting authority. Nehemiah's job would have placed him in higher authority than essentially any Jew in the entire Persian kingdom. He was the top dog. He got to sit at the king's table. 
He got to eat his bread and drink his wine. He got to have access with the king. He got to interact with him behind the scenes, behind the curtain. And yet we see multiple times in our passage that Nehemiah demonstrates not pride, but humility. When Artaxerxes calls out his sadness and is asked to make his heart known, notice his response. Does Nehemiah say, oh, king, your your people has killed my people. And because of your people, my village is destroyed. No, look what he says in verse three. I said to the king, let the king live forever. You know what that is? It's a blessing. Nehemiah, looking at a sinful king who doesn't care about God or who he is, doesn't have this smug thought in his heart of, yeah, you know, God's better than you. He's in control. No, no, no. He publicly, verbally blesses, honors the king. He says, let the king live forever. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 speaks on this issue in depth. He says, Romans 13, 1, let every person, all of us, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, all of you are in high school, and I know many of you can't even drive yet. So to think about the fact that you are showing respect to the governing authorities, probably not a thought that many of you guys have. Certainly not a thought that I had any time that I was definitely under the age of 18. But this verse, it means that. Show respect to governing authorities, but it it means more than that. Show respect to the people who are in authority over you. So who in your life is in authority over you? Think about that. Well, the clearest one's parents. Parents are in authority. So are your teachers. So are your coaches. So are your small group leaders. They are in authority over you. And besides them being in authority, what's something that all of them have in common? They are sinners. I'm a sinner. When I get up and preach to you, I may have authority over you. I'm a sinner. So, we can know that the obedience to the authority is not based on whether or not they are sinless. Because if that was the case, you would never have to obey any authority because it's always going to be sinful because it's always a human being. Our condition to obedience is based on the fact that God has placed them there. When you disobey your parent, you are disobeying God. When you disobey your small group leader, you are disobeying God. Someone will always raise the objection of, well, what if my parent told me to do something that was against what the Bible said? Then what do I do, right? You know, and really that's a smokescreen because they just don't want to obey. And I know that because I've had that same thought, not wanting to obey someone and wanting to justify my disobedience. But the truth is, is that if God has placed them in authority over us, we are called to submit. The conclusion is this, obey the authority. If you know for sure it's clearly against the Bible, then you can disobey. If it's anything less than that, anything less than that, here's what you do. You obey and you trust that God is able to reward your obedience and able to punish the sin of the person who's sinning against you. That's what Joseph did time and time again. Genesis, read it. It's incredible. 
Joseph continues to submit himself to evil authority. And it seems like he keeps getting punished by it. But ultimately, God is working on his behalf. We fear God by respecting authority. The last way we see how Nehemiah fears God is by remembering God's power. Remembering God's power. Nehemiah has worked faithfully. He's planned diligently. He's respected the authority of the king that is over him. And in doing all of these things, he's demonstrating that he has a greater fear. He doesn't fear the king and his opinion. He doesn't fear failure. He fears God more than any human, more than any ruler. So what would you say is the guiding truth, the biggest picture vision in his life? What would you say is the biggest picture, the biggest guiding truth in your life? What influences every decision that you make? What is the backbone behind how you do what you do and why you do it? How would you fill in this blank? If only I knew this, then I would be content. If only I had this, then I would be content. If only I was here, then I would be content. If only I had the right basketball shoes, then I would be content. If only I was out of my parents' house, then I would be content. If only I had the approval of my friends, then I would be content. If only I had the approval of my parents, then I would be content. We all have something, whether we identify it or not. And many of you probably wouldn't articulate those words, but if you stop to think about how your decisions are made over the last six months, you can get a pretty good indication of what that answer is. Nehemiah had one concrete thing to hold on to. He remembers God's power. He recognizes that this king could kill him at any moment. For any reason, the king had authority to just cut his head off if he wanted to. But you know what Nehemiah also recognized? That that king could not lay a finger on him without the approval of the heavenly king who is seated on the throne. This is massive trust in God's power. Nehemiah comes to the king with some huge requests. But look at verse 4 with me. Artaxerxes, hearing Nehemiah's sorrow, asks Nehemiah what he's requesting. What, is, what does it say right there? Right, before the, right in between those quotes. So I prayed to the God of heaven. So I pray to the God of heaven. This is the moment that Nehemiah has been waiting for for four months. He's been planning ahead. He's been faithfully working, praying for this opportunity. And before he just goes right into it with his plan, he stops. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Not to the little king of Persia, but to the God of heaven. This shows that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. We saw that last week very clearly. And he prays with confidence knowing that the one to whom he prays to is able to act. He's powerful. He is sovereign. Nehemiah does not fear the future. He fears God. He does not fear failure. He fears God. 
One commentator says it this way, There is no greater indicator of how much one depends on God than one's propensity to pray. Meaning, there is no better test of your true faith and fear of God than your tendency to pray. Nehemiah presents to Artaxerxes his plan. He asks for extended time away, which in Nehemiah 5 turns out it was 12 years. (laughs) Imagine asking your boss for 12 years of vacation. (laughs) I can't imagine that. He also asks for materials. He asks the king that he would provide the wood. He says, give me a letter to the Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber, wood to build the walls, the gates, the house. And then in addition to that, 12 years of vacation, all the supplies necessary, he asked for a letter to provide protection for him from the enemies who are outside of the land. His faith is very bold to ask the king for this much and to do it unashamedly. And as he presents his request, he clearly demonstrates that he has planned. He has thought ahead. And yet, there's something bigger than that. The passage closes with this at the end of verse 8. It says, And the king granted me what I asked. Why? Because I planned so well? Because I was so faithful? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah is asking a human king. He hears a response from a human king. But he recognizes that it is the power of God that brings it about. Proverbs 21.1 says it this way. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Even the king of Persia, this massive empire. If you were here last week, you saw this huge map. Persia had like taken over the world. And yet Nehemiah remembers God is the one who stirs this king exactly where he wants to go. God's power is not just able to influence the heart of a king in Persia, but also influence and overwhelm our hearts, your heart, my heart. And one of the most encouraging things in this passage is the position that Nehemiah is in as a cupbearer, trusted advisor, had intimate access with the king. And he was there because he had worked faithfully and done so well. But he also served with a recognition that he could die at any moment if he made a mistake. And yet the good news is that Jesus Christ has gone on our behalf. And now not only do we have limited access, but we have permanent access to God, the king. Not the king of this earth, but the king of heaven. And because it has been acted on by another Jesus Christ, it's not based on us. And so student, when you have a day where you feel in the dumps because of your sin, when you have a day where you feel so burdened because of the circumstances that are happening to you, they just feel crushing you have to remember that God has granted you access to the throne room. So Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne where we may find mercy and grace in our time of need.
And because of the work of Jesus Christ, we can approach the king and ask boldly, knowing that he is able to provide. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, he who fears God has nothing else to fear. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We ask that you would allow us to fear you. Your word says that perfect love casts out fear. And those things are connected. When we love you, God, we have fear of nothing else. Because we are known and loved by a loving God. I ask for your favor in small groups. We discuss and honor you with our speech. Be with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.